such an honor, such an honor to be here. And uh, I feel like I, I say this every single time, but it's just, it's not something that we take lightly. We really are honored to be here with you and still can't believe that we get to do this, that we get to be a part of ministry in any capacity at all. And as Pastor said, I've got an amazing family. I don't, I don't do this alone. And uh, we, we do ministry together. I think we got a picture. There's a picture of our family up there. And uh, that right there in the, in the middle, in the front, is our son Jude. And he is five years old. And we are, uh, we're so proud of him. He is just, uh, he's growing. His faith is growing. He's developing a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Even last night before we went to bed, uh, he was praying. He and I were praying together as we do every single night. And he was actually praying specifically for you, that you would receive what God had for you today. And then this morning, he was up early with me about 6 a.m. as I was studying and praying. And I said, hey, you can be up now, but if you're up, you got to pray with me. So he was praying with me again this morning for you, uh, calling you out in prayer. And it's uh, it's so cute to hear him say, he said, and Lord, pray for all the old people as well. And so, and his five-year-old self, all of us are old people now. So uh, that's just, that's his verbiage. But uh, he was praying for you. He was lifting you up and believing that God's going to speak to you. So we're so proud of him. He started kindergarten this semester, and he is just doing an incredible job. One thing our teacher did tell us in parent-teacher conferences is that he is very well-behaved, but he talks a lot in class, and uh, he gets that honest. And then my wife right there is holding our daughter, Quinn, and she is almost two years old. She'll be two years old in December, and uh, she is just uh, an absolute joy to have in our household. I still cannot believe that, that we get to have her in our home and that God has blessed us with her. And last time I came here, I was asking for prayer specifically for a few things that, that she was challenged in. And one of those was that she was walking. She was kind of late to be able to walk. And just a couple of weeks ago, um, I'm excited to, to say that she is now walking and she is now doing things under her own strength that she normally could not. And um, we had been asking for prayer specifically for her in a number of different areas. And your pastors were so kind to pray for us through that process. And so I sent Pastor Ron a video of her walking the first day that she was really walking around the house. And it's just amazing to see what God has done, even in just the short time that we've been praying for her. And then right there holding her, obviously, is my wife, Lauren. She is my best friend. Uh, she is my closest confidant. And I'm just so glad that we get to do ministry together. We've now been in youth ministry for almost 10 years full time, which is hard to believe. That has been almost 10 years. We're not up into the Pastor Ron years yet. I mean, you got us beat, man. You are experienced. You know things I don't even think about yet. So I'll be asking for advice for a long time. But uh, almost 10 years into full-time ministry, full-time youth ministry, and it's just been an absolute joy to get to be a part of it. We were in inner city, Kansas City, ministering to students there, and then about four years, the district office, and now this summer transitioning to the national office and getting to host National Youth Conference next summer, getting to host a lot of the events that the national office does, and it's, it's just a joy. It's a challenge, but man, we're excited because we believe that there is a revival happening across our nation, and it's going to happen in the next generation. So we are glad to get to do what we get to do, but before I go any further, I want to take a moment, and I want to honor your pastors. I don't know if you know this, but it is Pastors Appreciation Month. I'm sure you've been talking about that here around the church, but we just think the world of your pastors. Pastor Ron and Melissa, we are just honored to call you friends, and you've been such a blessing in our life, specifically this year, just walking with us through different things. And one thing I'll say about your pastors is I really believe that they spend time with the Lord. And that should be a given as a pastor, someone in ministry, but sometimes it's not. But I can honestly say your pastors spend time with Jesus. And the way that I know that is because countless times now, multiple times, they have reached out to us with a prophetic word or a word they felt was for us in the moment. 
having no idea what was going on, having no idea the conversations we were having, having no idea what God was doing in our life, and it was spot on. So far, every single time, God has told them things that only God would know that we were walking through. And so thank you so much for being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, but also for putting time in with the Lord so that you can lead this congregation and shepherd these people well. Thank you for your leadership. Can we make some noise for your pastors? Come on. We've got to honor our pastors. Love you so much. And you've got some amazing youth pastors as well. Pastor Bear and Ruth, you guys are some of the best ever. And I I turned to Lauren during the announcements. I said, this is how you know they're good youth pastors. They're pulling an all-nighter the night of youth convention. That's how you know you got a good youth pastor. He is all in. He's willing to go all night. So you got a good one here. You got a great youth pastor. And we got to spend a week in Africa together earlier this year. And uh, that was a lot of fun and venture I'll never forget. But we love this church. It's definitely become a church family to us. And grateful to be here. But I do want to jump into the Word today. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get your Bible out or turn your Bible on. And we are going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 22 in just a few moments. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, my wife and I were district youth directors for about four years. And being district youth directors here in southern Missouri, it meant that we were driving a lot because our churches are spread out all over the state. We've got about 360-some churches spread out across the state in big cities, in small towns, in towns you've never heard of, towns you've never seen, other places that are popular and familiar, and they've got sports teams, some don't. I mean, we've been all over the place, right? The big cities, the small towns, and sometimes these drives take us places, roads that we've never been to, roads that we've never seen or ever heard of before, And there was one particular drive that I was taking by myself, and it was actually to another district to serve a different Assemblies of God district. And I was driving through the state of Kansas. And sometimes on these drives, I'll make sure and call my wife and let her know where I'm at because the GPS isn't even picking up where I'm at. And so this was kind of one of those, just letting her know where I was. And as I was driving, the the highway turned into a two-lane highway. And as I'm driving on this two-lane highway, I can sense that the wind had started to pick up where I was driving. And sure enough, as I was on this two-lane highway, I see the sign outside my passenger window right off the side of the road. And the sign said, caution, wind current. That was the sign. Just to give you an idea of what that sign meant, it meant that enough people had been blown off of the road that they had to put a sign there letting you know you might be next, okay? That's the kind of place that I was in. I mean, it was like a deer crossing sign. It was like a bear crossing sign. And I've seen some of those. And when we were in Africa, we saw camel crossing signs, different things, elephant crossing I had never seen wind crossing. Okay, this was a first for me. So I see the sign out the passenger window, and then I looked out my driver's side window. And about a quarter of a mile off the road out into the field, I see what is called a wind farm. If you don't know what a wind farm is, a wind farm is a cluster of dozens of freestanding wind turbines. And what happens is the wind blows through this region, and these turbines turn in a massive circle. They're like those giant fans that you see out in the plains of different states. And the wind turbine starts to turn, and it produces this renewable resource that we know as electricity. And experts actually believe that by 2030, about 20% of all of the electricity that we have will be produced by these wind farms. So they're very important. But as I'm driving down this road, I see the sign, and then I see the wind farm out my my driver's side window. I just had this thought drop into my spirit, and it was this. Isn't it interesting that the very same element that is a risk to me right here on the road is actually seen as a resource right out here in the field? Isn't it interesting that the very same element that is seen as a hazard to me as the traveler 
is actually seen as a harvest right out here to the farmer. Isn't it interesting that the very same element that I as the traveler am having to watch out for is the exact same element that the farmer is looking for, praying for, begging for, and believing for. What's the difference? I think the difference comes down to one word, commitment. I think commitment is the difference. Because as the traveler, I had places that I was trying to go. But I had people to see. I wasn't planning on staying there and hanging out. I was simply passing through. That's me as the traveler. But the farmer, the farmer was not just passing through. The farmer is planted there. I was just driving through. I was aware of the land. I knew that it existed, but I hadn't really thought of it much before. I had never been there. It was unfamiliar. I knew that it was there, but I wasn't like the farmer because the farmer The farmer is invested there. The farmer is accountable, responsible. The farmer is committed to that land and what that land can actually produce. Commitment changes everything because commitment sees things differently. I want to preach a message to you this morning, and if I had to give it a title, it would be this. Commitment sees it differently. Commitment sees it differently. If you're taking notes, you can write that down in your notes or somewhere in the margin of your Bible. Commitment sees it differently. And the reason why I want to preach this specific message is because I believe that that right now, all over our nation, we're seeing a few things happen. Statistics would show us and studies, in-depth studies would show us that there are a mass number of people who are walking away from their faith. People are walking away from their faith in record numbers. They're deconstructing the faith that they had spent their whole life building on God's word, just walking away from it. But studies have also shown us, recent ones especially, But people are not just walking away from their faith, but there are people who are still Bible-believing Christians who have now become casually interested in their faith. In fact, the American Bible Society did a study, and last year alone, 26 million people in the United States alone, that's a conservative number, 26 million people in the United States who regularly read their Bible started to engage with Scripture less or stopped engaging with Scripture altogether. These aren't people who didn't know Jesus. These are people who were committed enough to have a regular Bible reading habit. They had a discipline to spend time in God's word, and they are now reading their Bible less or not at all. What that tells me is that we've got people left and right who are becoming casually interested in their faith rather than deeply committed. And being casually interested in our faith, that is a very dangerous place to be. Because what happens is we start to see things as a threat that we should see as an opportunity. So when we're casually interested, We see giving of our time to build God's house and God's church. We see that as nothing more than a threat to our calendar. When we're casually interested, we see giving of our gifts and our abilities and our skills as nothing more than a a threat to our influence. And we see giving of our finances, whether it be to missions or to build the local church, as nothing more than a threat to our bank account. But to the person who is deeply committed, they understand that to the measure they give, it will be given back to them a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over according to God's word and God's will. Church, I'm telling you, commitment changes everything because commitment simply sees things differently. Commitment sees the community differently. Commitment sees sacrifice differently. Commitment sees the lost differently. Commitment sees the world differently. And I really think that if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, because I, I, really, I really believe this, this church is not here by accident. Your pastors have not been here as long as they have been by accident. This church is strategically situated in this city, in this community, to make a difference in the lives of the people who live in the community. 
This church is here on assignment. But I really believe it's impossible for us to accomplish the assignment God has for our life without a deep level of commitment to building his church, to building his kingdom, and to asking God to use us. Commitment sees things differently. We're going to read a passage to illustrate this and to demonstrate this and what God's will would be for us out of Acts chapter 16. Before we do, I want to give you a little bit of context. We're picking up with the Apostle Paul and a few of his companions on their second missionary journey. As you know, the Apostle Paul went on a number of missionary journeys. This was their second one. They were in a city called Philippi in the region of Macedonia. They were there building the church. They were preaching. They were teaching. They were spending time in prayer, raising up leaders, doing what God had asked them to do. While they were there, they were being followed around by a slave girl who happened to also be demon-possessed. Many of you are familiar with this passage if you've grown up in church. And this girl was following them around day after day to the point where it got so annoying that the Apostle Paul stopped what he was doing. He turned and he cast the demon out of the girl. The moment that he cast the demon out of her, she then also lost the ability to make money for her masters because she was a fortune teller. So she was making money for her masters. And when Paul cast the demon out, she could no longer do that. And her masters were furious. And they decided to throw the city into an uproar. And that is where we pick up on our passage. Verse 22 says this. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can go. Leave in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want us to go quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Paul actually didn't even want to go to this city in this season. Paul didn't want to go to Philippi. He didn't want to go to this region of Macedonia. Maybe eventually he had planned to get there, but Paul had a mapped out plan. He had an agenda, and this was not on his agenda for this season. But the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul in a dream, and he told him to go to this city in this region because there were people there who desperately needed the gospel. They needed him to go there. So the Apostle Paul was willing to then lay down his agenda so he could pick up the assignment that God had for his life. 
Scripture tells us that in his heart a man makes his plans, but the Lord orders his steps. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have ordered steps than made plans. Made plans, they make sense before they happen. But ordered steps, they make sense after they happen. And you look back and see the faithfulness of God, that God was leading, that God was guiding and directing our steps each and every day. He had to be willing to put down his agenda to pick up the assignment. As I mentioned earlier, this church is not here on accident. We're here on assignment. And you specifically, personally, your family, you're not here on accident. You are here on assignment. If we're going to fulfill the assignment God has for our life, we've got to put down our agenda so we can pick up that assignment, whatever it may be, and wherever God is calling us to go. Paul didn't want to go here. Maybe some more spiritual people would have wanted to, but he didn't want to go. But God said, this is where I want you to go. And so he went. And so they're there in the city of Philippi, and they're building the church, and they're, they're preaching. They're demonstrating what it's like to follow Jesus. They're leading people in prayer, building up leaders. And what happens is they end up finding themselves throwing the city into an uproar because they were doing what God asked them to do, and they find themselves in the inner cell of the prison. Now, the inner cell of a prison in their culture was not a fun place to be. If you've studied any of the history, then you know that the inner cell in a prison like this would have set a few feet lower than the other cells of the prison. And the reason it was a few feet lower is so that all of the trash and the waste from the other jail cells could fall into the cell that you were in. So Paul and Silas were literally standing ankle deep, probably in trash and garbage and other people's waste, and they're stuck in the prison. That does not sound like a fun evening to me. I don't know about you, but that does not sound fun to me. It doesn't sound enjoyable. What's so interesting about this is that they were doing exactly what God asked them to do, where God asked them to do it, and they ended up in the prison. I mean, think about it. They were doing exactly what God had told them to do. They were being obedient, and they landed in the prison doing exactly what God had spoken to them, and they still took a big loss. Like, to me, that looks like an L. That's a loss. Ending up in that prison on that night, not fun. If you ever followed Jesus in doing something kind of risky, you've ever taken a risk for God, you found that that happens often when following Jesus. Because so often we will do exactly what God wants us to do. And doing what God wants us to do leads us to loss. You ever notice that? If you never found yourself there, just keep following Jesus. I promise you at some point you will. And I'm not talking about a loss of a loved one, although that might be a part of a losing season. But I do mean, have you ever done exactly what God asked you to do and you still didn't have reconciliation with that relationship? Have you ever done exactly what God asked you to do, but you still did not get the open door, the promotion that you were really expecting at work? Have you ever done exactly what God asked you to do, and you still didn't get the scholarship? Keep following Jesus. There will come a moment where God's God's will and God's word will lead us to a place that looks, sounds, and even feels like loss. And sometimes, doing what God wants us to do, I would argue, even looks irresponsible because of where it leads us. I would go as far as to say that sometimes, especially to people who did not hear from God on our behalf, they will look at what we're doing and say, that looks negligent to me. See, sometimes obedience actually looks like negligence. Let's look at Webster's definition of negligence. I think we've got it. Webster's definition of negligence is this. It's the failure to exercise the care that a reasonably prudent person would exercise in like circumstances. It's the failure to exercise the care that a reasonably prudent person would exercise in like circumstances. To me, that looks an awful lot like obedience. 
because sometimes obedience is not reasonable. Sometimes obedience is not normal. It doesn't make sense. But even though obedience isn't reasonable, obedience is always blessable. And even though it's not normal, it is what produces a miracle when we're doing what God asks us to do when he's asked us to do it. A while back, my wife and I were at a missions dinner. where They were raising money for Speed the Light. And we had our daughter with us, and she was kind of fussy. So my wife had taken her out into the lobby. So I'm sitting at this dinner. My wife's in the lobby. And I just sensed, as they were challenging us to step out in faith for missions, I just sensed that God was speaking to me. And I felt like he was telling me to sell our car and give the money to missions. That's what I was sensing. And as I'm sitting there, just trying to make sure that this is really God, I'm thinking, Lord, is, is, this, is this really you? Like, Do you really want me to sell my car and give it to missions? He said, did I stutter? No, he didn't say that. He is kind. He is much more kind than that. But he confirmed it in my heart that this is what he wanted me to do. And so I start bargaining with God, which is never a good idea. And I said, okay, Lord, I will, I will do this. I'll sell the car. I'll give the money to missions. However, it would be really great if you could tell my wife about this. Lord, I need, I need you to tell her, okay? I mean, she's generous, and, and she loves missions, and she loves the kingdom. But, Lord, it would be really helpful to me if, if you could communicate this to her separately because we have a comfortable couch at my house. I just don't want to sleep on it, okay? So that would be nice if you could speak to her. And So I gave the Lord a few days just in case he wanted to change his mind. But then I uh, went to my wife, and I said, I think. God has asked us to sell the car and give the money to missions. And she said, without hesitation, if that's what God's asking you to do, then you got to do it. So we sold the car and we gave the money to missions. But we still needed a car, so we had to do what I wouldn't encourage people to do. We, we had to take out a loan to get another car. And actually, a friend of mine is an executive at the company that we were taking the loan out from. So I'm thinking to myself, great. Now he's going to know that I'm taking out a loan and he knows more about my finances than I know about my finances. Right? He knows more about my life than I know. He's going to think this looks irresponsible and negligent. But what God had to remind me through the process is that it did not matter what someone else thought about what God was asking me to do. What mattered is that I was obedient to what God was asking me to do. Because I wasn't there to please my friend. I was there to please my Savior. And he had asked me to do it. So we had to do it. But God began to bless us financially. It was awesome. It was coming through. Good measure. Pressed down. Shaken together. But I was still waiting for the running over part. <laughs> I hadn't really seen that yet. But I was preaching at a youth event, and it was the last service of this youth event. I'm getting ready to walk up on stage and preach, and this young guy, probably almost 10 years younger than me, he comes and he just starts pacing right in front of me, just like this, just kind of pacing in front of me as I'm getting ready to preach. And I'm standing there thinking, please don't talk to me right now. I'm getting ready to go deliver the word. I don't need an apocalyptic word spoken over my life before I'm going to go encourage these students. It happens sometimes when you're a preacher. It's just a strange thing. People think they have a word for you right before you go and preach. And I'm just thinking, not now, not now. And sure enough, he says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. He said, uh, what's your Cash App name? I said, what? He said, Cash App. Do you have Cash App? I said, I do. And if you don't know what Cash App is, it's an app on your phone that you can use to transfer money. I said, I do have it, but I, I never use it. He said, well, what's your Cash App name? There's something I got to do. I said, look, man. I'm here to serve you and serve your church and your youth pastor and your students this week. Whatever you feel like you need to do, you, you, you don't need to do. He said, hey, I have to do this. I said, okay, here's my cash app name. And he typed something in on his phone. Then he said, there, it's done. And then he turned and walked away. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Didn't think much of it. I'm getting ready to walk up on stage. Right before I hit the stairs, I get a notification on my phone. This young man had just transferred into the thousands 
the exact amount of money that I had sold my car for and given the money to missions. And he didn't know me. He didn't know my story. He didn't know what we had given. He had absolutely no idea the journey that we had been on. But what I discovered is that when we do what God asks us to do for him, he will do for us that which nothing and no one else could do. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. That is who he is. And there will be moments where our obedience will seem like negligence. But if it's what God has asked us to do, we've got to do it. Because the opinions of other people do not matter. What matters is pleasing God. Sometimes it's going to feel irresponsible. I mean, really, did Paul have to really cast out the demon in front of everybody? Like, couldn't they have done it somewhere privately where the whole, the whole town wasn't watching and people weren't about? Couldn't he have led people to Jesus another way? No, that was the way that he did it. He was being obedient to God and it landed him in the prison. And scripture tells us that they're in the prison, standing ankle deep in all of this filth, And about midnight, they start to worship. It's midnight. It smells. They're hurting from being beaten almost to death. You can hear the squeaking of rats and the dripping of water. It's disgusting in there. And what do they do? This is how I fight my battles. You're going to have to help me because I can't sing. This is how I fight my battles. Midnight. This is how I fight my battles. They're worshiping. As I read this, I'm thinking, listen, there is no way that I would be worshiping in that situation. I'm just going to be honest. Paul seems way more spiritual than me in this moment because that would be difficult. How is it that they could respond that way? They're standing in the inner cell at midnight. They're in the stocks. They're in pain. It's disgusting. And they're worshiping. How could worship be their response? I think that worship was their response because they realized that worship was their resource. That's the thing about commitment is that commitment helps us recognize resource. Take a notes, write that down somewhere. Commitment will help us recognize resource. You see, what happens when someone is deeply committed is rather than complaining about the things they don't have, they start to use the things that they actually do have. They recognize what their resource is. I think Paul and Silas started to understand that they only had one resource, but it was the only resource that they would need. I think they started understanding that the battle they were fighting was not a physical one, but a spiritual one. I think they understood that they weren't fighting against humans and flesh and blood. No, they were fighting against spirits and principalities that were at work in the heavenly realms. I think they started to understand that the greatest weapon they had at their disposal was the worship that was coming out of their mouth. I think they finally understood that the only resource we had was the only one we were actually going to need. Let me ask you this question. How are you using the resource that you already have? How am I using the resource that God has already given me? I think when we answer that question honestly, it's a little bit convicting. And here's why it's convicting. Because for most of us, what we find is that we don't have a resource problem. We just have an application problem. My family and I were on a ministry trip, and it was the longest ministry trip that we had ever been on, and all four of us were on the trip. Church, it was 18 days of traveling, preaching, airplanes, hotel rooms, campgrounds, all four of us in one room for 18 days. I had to invite Jesus back into my life multiple times on that trip, okay? I'm I'm not a Calvinist, so I had to invite him back in a number of times. Parents, you can say amen. (laughs) I love my kids, but 18 days? We got back from the trip, pulled up to our house. I looked at my yard and realized that my grass while we were gone had died. Like it was brown and there were weeds everywhere. It had died. 
So I get my family inside the house and I walk outside and I just stand there at the end of my driveway, looking at my grass, wondering what in the world I was going to do. As I'm standing there looking at my grass, my neighbor walks out of his house, stands right next to me. He says, uh, what happened to your lawn? I said, well, and he's a friend of mine. He's a nice guy. I said, well, uh, it died. <laughs> Lawn's dead. <laughs> it's, it's, it's dead. He said, man, I got to be honest with you. He said, I've lived in this house for 15 years. And in all the 15 years I've lived here, I have never seen this lawn look this bad. I'm standing there thinking to myself, I didn't say it, but I'm thinking, no, he did not. No, he didn't, right? Like, I'm offended at this point, which isn't saying much because I'm a millennial. So I was offended before the conversation even started, right? Like, I woke up offended that day. I'm offended right now. But I'm standing there thinking, no, he didn't. No, he did not. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. He says, okay, you'll, you'll get it figured out. Have a good one. And then he walks back into his house. I'm standing there wondering, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't be dead lawn guy. Like, I don't want to be dead grass guy on the street. I don't want to be the only guy with dead grass. Like, you know, this is, this is not a good look. You know, I don't, I don't want this. I got to make sure that I do something about this. And it might surprise you, but I'm not really much of an outdoorsman. So I'm just wondering what in the world am I going to do? Well, I knew that the people before us had installed irrigation. So we had sprinklers and different things in the yard. And so I go into the garage and in the garage, there's this control panel and it controls the sprinkler system. And I open up this control panel and there's this big knob inside the control panel. And it was turned to this setting called off. The entire summer, I thought that my lawn was getting watered at 4.15 a.m. every single day. But it turns out it was only getting water during the occasional rainstorm or the morning dew that settled on the ground. This was frustrating to me. Because I knew that we had sprinklers. I knew we had irrigation. We had all of the sprinkler heads strategically placed throughout the yard to disperse the water evenly across the grass. It wasn't that we lacked what we needed. It's that we weren't properly using what we already had. We didn't have a resource problem. We had an application problem. And it's not just true with my lawn. I find often it's true with my life. Because anytime God asks me to do something for him, everything I have is everything I need to do exactly what God has asked me to do. We don't have a resource problem. It's an application problem. How do we know? Because time and time again, we see that God provides everything we need through scripture to do exactly what he's called us to do. Judges chapter six to Gideon. What did the Lord say? Go in the strength you have. Second Kings chapter four to the widow. Elisha said, what do you have in the house? Jesus in Luke nine to his disciples feeding 15,000 or so people. He said, you give them something to eat. And the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. I'm telling you, the only resources we have are the only ones we actually need when we're doing what God's asked us to do, because he will make a way. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we're not aware of it, but God always comes through because he is faithful. Somebody in the room today might be saying, you know, pastor, that sounds good. It's good rhetoric. It preaches well, but you don't understand. I have nothing to use right now. Listen, if you feel like you have nothing to use, it means you actually have nothing to lose. So you might as well call it on the name of the Lord, and perhaps he will work on your behalf. And I would argue this. There is a word that we need to start using a lot more in our church, in our household. It's this word, perhaps. If you haven't taken any notes yet, at least write that one word down, perhaps. I think a lot of us, we get so comfortable saying God probably won't. What if we said perhaps God will? We get so used to saying God probably won't heal. God probably won't provide. 
God probably won't open the door. What if we started saying, perhaps God will? That word comes out of a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 6, where Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his young armor bearer were about to go take out 20 enemy Philistines. And what do they say? Perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf, for nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps God's going to work. That's a word for somebody in the room. Perhaps God will make a way. They understood in that prison the only resource they had was worship, and so they used it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up if they could. So they start worshiping. And scripture tells us that the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, some translations render it that the prisoners were overhearing them, but if you do the study in the original language, what you find is that it was an active form of listening. They were actually leaning in to understand. They weren't just overhearing the sound. That is an abnormal response, that they would lean in to understand what these guys are singing about at midnight in a prison. That's an abnormal response. But that's what happens when there's an unusual sound. An unusual sound gets an abnormal response. In our culture right now, grace is an unusual sound. Mercy is an unusual sound. Generosity is an unusual sound. Love is an unusual sound. What would the response be around us if we exemplified the unusual sound of the fruits of the Spirit? I think we'd get an abnormal response from the people that we do life with and we go to work with and we spend time with. They might lean into what God is doing rather than try and shun it or walk away or break down the Word of God, which can never actually be broken down. Get an abnormal response. And as they're singing, prisoners are listening to them. Scripture tells us that the ground beneath their feet literally begins to shake. I want you to think about this. They're in the prison, ankle deep in filth, and the ground begins to tremble. There's dust falling from the ceiling. You can hear the metal clanging of doors and bars. Wood beams are breaking. Everything begins to get shaken up. There's an actual earthquake shaking the foundations of the prison. If you look at scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what you discover is that oftentimes earthquakes will either precede or precede a great move of God. Time and time again in scripture, earthquakes will precede or precede a great move of God. So what this tells me is that when things get shaken up, it's a good indicator that God is about to or has already shown up to do what he wants to do. I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the last two and a half years, our world has been shaken up. But I really believe it is a sign that God is about to show up. God's going to bring revival. God's going to speak things that people have not been privy to in decades. I think God's going to do miracles like we have never seen. I think God is about to show up and we can take heart because he's on the move. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon put it years ago. He said an earthquake doesn't have to mean a heartquake. What that means is that even though things are being shaken up around us, our soul doesn't have to be shaken within us because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. When things get shaken up, we can have confidence that the Lord is showing up and he's going to work on our behalf. Sometimes without warning, he shows up. And sure enough, he, he shows up here in the prison. Doors are flying open, bars are breaking, and the prison warden comes in and he's about to take his own life. Because he knows that if these prisoners escape, he's a dead man anyway. He's getting ready to take his own life. And Paul and Silas say, hold on. Don't, don't do anything. We're all here. 
he said, we're all still here. All of the prisoners. Meaning no one had escaped. If it was me and those prison doors are open, I'm gone. (laughs) I'm out of there. But nobody left. Why didn't the prisoners leave? I'm guessing it's because Paul and Silas didn't leave. I'm guessing it's because the prisoners knew at this point there's something unique about these gentlemen. If they're staying put, we're going to stay put. We're not leaving. It kind of made sense why the other prisoners wouldn't leave. They're like, hey, I'm not leaving these two guys. But why did Paul and Silas not leave? The doors were open. The bars were broken. They were put there unjustly anyways. Why didn't they leave? Here's why. Because they were committed. Here's what happens. Commitment it actually gives us clarity about the miracles that God is doing. So because they were so committed to reaching people, they saw clearly what God was doing. And the clarity showed them that their chains being broken, that was just the preliminary miracle. But the jailer's chains being broken, that was the primary miracle. Their freedom was preliminary. The jailer's freedom and his family's freedom, that was primary. That was the reason why they had ended up in the prison in the first place. Because God had something he wanted them to do in that space. There was something they were to accomplish, and they were deeply committed to accomplishing it. So rather than running for the exit, they stayed there. Because they were more concerned with reaching the jailer than they were with reaching the exit. And so we're staying put. We're staying put. Commitment gives us clarity. So those who are casually interested, they'll stick around long enough to see what God does. Those who are deeply committed, they stick around long enough to see why God has done what he has done. Because they know there's a reason why God is moving. There's a reason why he opened the door. There's a reason why he has me here. There's a reason why he's put me in this cubicle or in this office. There's a reason why my kids are going to this school. There is a reason. It gives us clarity. Just stand to your feet all over this place this morning. Commitment simply sees things differently. After Paul and Silas reach the jailer, his life is changed with the truth of Jesus. They try to escort them out quietly. Tried to get rid of them. And what what does Paul say? He says, no. Have them come escort us themselves. Why? Why? Because we are Roman citizens, and they put us here unfairly without a trial. Did you know that in their culture, if you were a Roman citizen, by law you had to be given a lawful trial before you could go to prison in the way that they went to prison? Paul the Apostle knew it. Here's what's crazy. He didn't learn it while he was in prison. He knew it before he went to prison. So why is it just now coming out? Because Paul knew God had an assignment for him where he was going. All he would have had to say is these three Latin words, civis romanus sum. All he would have had to do is say those three words at any time during his flogging, at any time during his arrest, and they would have had to take their hands off of him and give him a trial. But he kept his mouth shut so that the door could be open for him to be used by God in the prison. He remained silent because his commitment was to the person he was trying to reach. The commitment knows when to speak and when to be quiet. Commitment knows that sometimes the things we can say are not the things we should say because God's doing something greater than we can see.